when Moscow saw itself as needing to step into the role that had been vacated by Byzantium as the defender of, of Orthodox Christianity, the rulers of, of Moscow took the title Tsar, which is Russian for, for Caesar, seeing themselves as the continuation of that Christian emperor's role, but the church was not allowed to be that loyal opposition. This is Culture at a Crossroads with David Mann. All right, with me on the show, he is a professor, an academic, and an author, uh, most recently of The Unknown Europe, How Eastern Europe Got That Way. Uh, joining me from McMaster Divinity College in Hamilton, Jim Payton. Thanks for jumping on the show. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, Jim, how does someone who is a Presbyterian, a Protestant Christian, get such a fascination into the Orthodox way of Christianity? I didn't grow up in the Presbyterian world. I grew up in a, in a church background that had little, had no reference to, that I could ever hear of to church history. But when, when in graduate school and seminary, I ended up discovering that I could marry my love of the scriptures and, and doctrine with history. I, I went wild and took every course I could that was available. And one of the ones that had been listed but not offered during the time I was at seminary was a course on Eastern Orthodoxy. And I asked to take it as a reading course. I was privileged to do that. And then uh, I found that it was fascinating because Orthodoxy, beginning from the scriptures and the same church fathers that we have uh, in, from the ancient church, uh, ask different questions. And when you ask different questions of scripture, you get different answers. And when you start at different places on the journey, uh, the, the, the trip goes a different, in a different direction. And I, I found it was a fascinating and enriching way of, of for me as a Protestant, well-versed in the Reformed and, and even Lutheran circles and so on, to be exposed to the teaching of Scripture and to be challenged to reflect it and understand it as they have. What would be an example of uh, one of those questions that you had never confronted before that uh, came across your desk in those days? A, a simple one that a, a friend put to me is, what is grace? And I said, well, you know, and I told him, well, He's a Ukrainian Orthodox priest, by the way, and he'd known me for some years. And I said, well, we're justified by grace, we're sanctified by grace, and so on and so on. He says, yes, you're telling me what grace does, but what is grace? I said, well, it, it, and I fumbled about a bit more, recognizing that as Protestants, as all Christians, we talk about grace extensively. He said, no, what is it? Is it, and then he made it simpler, is it created or uncreated? Is it part of creation or is it not? I said, well, it's not. He says, then what is it? I said, then it's God. It's God not, I, I, I kind of had this sense from my upbringing, and I was well-versed by this time in, in scripture and in seminary studies and whatever else, that grace was something like, it, it was in a spiritual picture, then God poured it out at arm's length. But from an Orthodox perspective, no, grace is God acting in us. And it's very much what Paul says, is God at work in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure in Philippians 2. And so things like that, just approaching it from a different angle, uh, a different thing they pointed out as well, uh, perhaps more basic. From the Orthodox perspective, the basic problem that happened as a result of Adam and Eve's sin is that we are in death. Yes, we've sinned, but we're dealing with death. And, and so the, in the wages of sin is not guilt, but death. And so the, the way in which they understand and speak of how death has affected us and how salvation is accomplished for us by Christ, makes great emphasis, obviously, on the resurrection, that death is defeated 
by the one who's come back from the grave for us. And I have to admit that in much of the, at least the evangelical or Protestant world I, I, I'd grown up in and experienced, also as a pastor, Easter Sunday was, was wonderful, but the real focus was always on Good Friday. And from an Orthodox perspective, you know, Good Friday is there, but unless you have Easter Sunday, doesn't matter what happened on Good Friday, which sounds an awful lot like Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ is not raised from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So that just those kinds of different ways of perceiving of the common shared heritage of what Scripture offers us and the implications of them uh, as they work them out, uh, I found them very enriching. And in fact, this term, I'm teaching a course at McMaster Divinity College called Eastern Church Spiritual Traditions, which offers students there an opportunity to wrestle with some of these questions too. So enlightening. And along the way, you were exposed to the the long history that uh, orthodoxy played, which was before Protestantism. What would be some of the insights that you've uncovered, and particularly in relation to Russia and Ukraine, about orthodoxy's roots in in those countries? Okay, that's a fascinating question. Um, orthodoxy uh, grew out of the ancient church. Uh, it sees itself as the continuation of the ancient church, just as is the, in the medieval Catholic tradition, Rome sees itself as growing out of the of the ancient church as well. Uh, along the way, after the collapse of the Roman Empire in the West, um, and the, but the continuation in the East in Byzantium, Constantinople, called the Byzantine Empire, um, the two segments of Christendom were growing farther apart from each other because their different emphases and focuses and so on were other, and they couldn't communicate well. Uh, the language barrier of, of poor Latin uh, in the West, because there was no schooling anymore, and the sophisticated Greek in the East made for communication difficulties. Certainly, there was, there was rivalry between the, the old Rome that was the capital and the new Rome that Byzantium became. That was actually Constantinople's technical name. It was New Rome. It was the new capital of the Roman Empire. And all of that just developed into rivalry during the Middle Ages. But Byzantium uh, ended up sending out missionaries throughout Eastern Europe and other areas as well. And eventually, one of the countries that was evangelized and drawn into Eastern Christianity, into Orthodoxy, was a state called Kievan Rus. In 988, Vladimir, the Grand Prince of Kiev, uh, embraced Eastern Christianity and became a Christian, and with him the state of, as well. Now, for many of us in the West, we don't, we've never heard about Kievan Rus because, frankly, as I know as a Western, as a teacher of Western history, we don't get a whole lot of information about Eastern Europe uh, and its history. But Kievan Rus was the most, from the mid-900s to the mid-1200s, so for three centuries, was the most sophisticated, uh, largest, and richest of all the nations of Europe. And it's the mother state out of which Ukraine and Belarus, but Russia also developed. So Kiev is the capital city now of Ukraine. That's the first part of the name, but the Rus uh, became Russia uh, in later on. What happened was that after this time of flourishing, the, the Kievan Rus was destroyed by the Mongol invasions, and Kiev was left devastated, but, and, but there were areas of the old Kievan Rus state that continued to flourish to the north, and they managed to survive. And the one that was eventually that we know of as Moscow developed into the, into the country of Russia. But in that regard, by this time, Eastern and Western Christianity had come at loggerheads when Constantinople was under siege by the Ottoman Turks, who were Muslims, 
the Western Christians, although they were appealed to for help, offered basically no help whatsoever. And each of the two Christianities in West and Eastern Orthodoxy viewed each other as perversions of the faith. By the time Moscow comes to kind of a self-awareness in the 1400s, the Muscovite leaders were very aware of, the, of their responsibility to, uh, to hold on to their Orthodox faith, but they were the only country in the world now that was committed to Orthodoxy. And they saw themselves as distant from the West. By that time, much of the territory of what we would now call Ukraine had, was under the control of Poland or eventually of Austria. And they, of course, were Western Christians with implications of a religious heritage. And so what ended up happening is that the leaders of Moscow, as they developed into a large state, eventually Russia, saw it as their duty before God to re reclaim all the territory of, ancient, of Kievan Rus in the Middle Ages, Kievan Rus to the glory of God and to defend them from what, would they, what was perceived as the corruptions of Western Christianity, which, which they were repudiated. As the Russian state expanded into the Russian Empire, I certainly wouldn't say this, this desire to reclaim it for the sake of Christianity in the church was always at the front of, of their thought. They, they were becoming an empire. They were doing all the things that empires do. But the religious undergirding for this never went away, and it became part of the, of the regular rhetoric. There's a reason that Russia used to call itself Holy Mother Russia. They thought of themselves as holding to the one true faith and the, being the only country in the world that did. And so Russia saw it as its duty then to reclaim the territory that we would now know of as Ukraine and incorporate it again into the one true faith uh, that had once been proclaimed. Jim, a lot of us uh, listening to this, uh, living in in Canada, uh, don't have much experience or exposure to uh, the church and state being so intertwined. I mean, there's a separation here in the West. Uh, could you give us a little bit of background on on just why uh, the Orthodox Church in Eastern Europe and Catholic and Protestant churches and, and the other places in Europe were just so intertwined with the government? It goes back a long, long time, obviously, to when, when Constantine in, in 312, 313, uh, in due course, became the sole emperor of the Roman Empire, and he favored Christianity. That was such a remarkable turn from the persecution that periodically had, had been uh, uh, imposed on the church. And so the idea of church and state working together for the betterment of the empire and the protection of the church was, was one that was kind of dearly held all around. When Byzantium continued after the, as the, as the continuation of the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire, after the, the West basically fell under the control of barbarians and Germanic peoples, the Byzantine emperor, the, the Caesar, he, he didn't have a, a, a senate or anything such as had been the case in the early Roman Empire to keep to put brakes on him. The only break he had was the church if and when the church would oppose him, and that happened periodically in the Byzantine Empire. There was a recognition that the emperors sometimes wanted to impose things on the church and the empire that, that simply were out of, uh, out of line with Christian teaching or out of, not in the best interests of the Christian faith. And so that was a pattern that continued through that, throughout the Byzantine Empire. When Moscow saw itself as needing to step into the role that had been vacated by Byzantium as the defender of, of Orthodox Christianity, the rulers of, of Moscow took the title Tsar, which is Russian for, for Caesar, seeing themselves as the continuation of that Christian emperor's role. But the church was not allowed to be that loyal opposition. So the church basically was expected to cooperate with the emperor, with the Tsar, uh, and the church... In, in, the, in the Russian state and the Russian empire didn't have the same leverage to critique the emperor in, in, uh, or this, the Tsar 
and get them to, uh, to back off any kind of decisions. There was a very close relationship. In the West, it ended up eventually that we have the separation of church and state after a long series of religious wars in which people were killing each other for being Christians, whether Protestant or, or Roman Catholic or even Lutherans and Reformed killing each other at the Thirty Years' War, the separation of church and state arose out of the horrors of Christians killing each other out of state purposes, supposedly. That pattern has not developed in, uh, in, in Russia. The, the, the Orthodox Church has basically supported the emperor of the Tsar and worked with him or whoever, whatever the title of, of the ruler has been now. Vladimir mm. Putin is a, is a president. Yeah. So as uh, Ukraine is, uh, the, the Ukrainian people are, are becoming distinct from the Russian people, how is the identity of, of these people uh, becoming more and more distinctly different from their neighbors and coming from, they were both originally descending from Kiev and Rus, but the, but there's becoming more and more of a, of a unique identity to them. It's an excellent question. Uh, Kevin Roos was this expansive state that had uh, clearly it ruled the, the area that we would think of as Ukraine and Belarus and Russia and beyond. Um, but, but Ukraine also had very good relationships with Western European nations under its greatest prince, uh, Yaroslav the Wise, uh, who ruled until 1054 uh, from about 1019 or so. His children were intermarried with the royal houses of Western Europe, so much so that he was known as the father-in-law of Europe. But you have those relationships in order to establish good uh, trade patterns and and keep peace between nations. And everybody wanted to be at peace with Kevin Roos. You didn't want to fight them. When Kevin Roos collapsed under the under the Mongol onslaughts uh, in in 1240 and 1241. Much of what we would think of as Ukraine now was left on its own, and and what developed as Russia to the northeast uh, developed on its own as well. But the people there left on its own from in what we would now call Ukraine, that territory, uh, recognized they weren't Russian, but they also weren't Polish, and they weren't Western Christian, and. Uh, to make a long story short, they eventually started calling themselves the people of the borderlands. Well, in their language, the borderlands, the term is Ukraina. And so we speak of people now as Ukrainians, as people who recognize we're neither Western European nor Russian. We're neither necessarily Western Christian nor Orthodox in the Russian sense. So they saw themselves as other than, as between uh, on the borderlands, between two very large, powerful areas. Uh, they didn't have a, a single ruler that could pull them together and give them that identity on their own. It, it developed, you know, partially under Polish and Austrian rule, and partially also under uh, under Russian rule. As the Russians started to reclaim territory that now is Ukraine. So, if we fast forward the timeline to the 20th century now, and uh, the wars break out, and we see some uh, very strong leaders. In Russia and the Soviet Union at times, uh, what is the general uh, response to these particular leaders by Ukrainians? Well, one of the things that's true of virtually all the rulers uh, in the 20th century, as well as had been the case with several Russian emperors before, is that these rulers wanted Ukraine to be subservient. In fact, that the, the term that's been used for, for centuries by Russians or Ukrainians is Malorussia. That is, little Russians. Basically, the big Russians are going to help them become true Russians. 
And that had been a practice in the Russian Empire uh, as they swallowed up some of these territories. And during the 20th century, when you're talking about uh, Joseph Stalin, Nikita Khrushchev, and now Vladimir Putin, the idea was to incorporate them, to force them to do what Big Brother thought was best for them. And if that meant that they suffered a little bit for it, then they suffered for it. And when the Ukrainians opposed that, and they did regularly during the Second World War, well, before the Second World War, during the time of the Communist Revolution, and during the times up to the Second World War, and subsequently, when they opposed that, um, they found they, they encountered the heavy wrath, the heavy hand of, of the Russian rulers for the most part. And we're seeing that now with, with Vladimir Putin as well. A lot of uh, media makes out the, the current conflict to, to send back to Putin's likening to, to want to have the Russia to be this nation that's the most powerful in the world again, like Kiev and Rus was. The peace of Ukraine being part of that empire is a lot about nostalgia. Uh, what else do you, do, you, do you drum it up to be? Well, certainly nostalgia in that regard. But for them, nostalgia is, has a, a deep religious root for, for those who are committed to orthodoxy or to the Russian cultural heritage. Um, it, it, it's something that they think of as, as deeply important to them. But beyond that, for centuries, Russia has seen itself as other than the West, other than Western Europe. Uh, that was they recognized that during the time of Peter the Great and, and subsequently from the 1700s on. Then during the time of the communists, obviously, uh, as the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, a communist empire was definitely other than what was going on in the West. Um, and so they, they, Russia has has looked on this territory, which they finally controlled in full, Kevin Rus's old territory as of 1945, when they swallowed up what was left of the. Polish areas that had been part of Kievan Rus. They wanted Ukraine to be there, but they also needed it as a buffer between the Western states and Russia itself. So not that they would sacrifice it, they would defend it doubtlessly. Uh, and they did so during the Second World War. But since the collapse of the Soviet Union, Ukraine being an independent nation has been an uncomfortable situation for the Russian Federation because they've, they've flirted with and indeed increasingly turned toward the West, toward European Union, toward NATO, to find that as a better place for their future economically, uh, culturally, uh, democracy, self-government, self-awareness. But this fits, in fairness to the Ukrainians, this fits with, with something that's been developing among them for centuries, a determination to be their own people, to govern themselves. So that what happened at, in 1991 when the Ukrainian People voted voted strongly in favor of of independence from the Russian Federation. What was a beginning of a realization of that dream? That's problematic for Russia. For Ukraine to be independent could mean and has meant recently a turn toward the West, which would alienate them to some degree from Russia, and that's that's frightening in many ways to the to the Russian mindset. What would some scholars who focus and maybe have, uh, if we can even say this? not empathy for the conflict, but empathy for the roots of why Russia so desperately wants Ukraine to be part of their nation. What might they say as to some of the ways that the Ukraine uh, country and their history has soured Russia's taste and, and some of the, uh, the bridges that they might have burnt down? I think a few ways. Again, that business, the, the practice of Russia calling Ukraine little Russia indicates a mindset uh, that you, you need to be part of us, you need to be who we are and what we say you should be. And like 
many people who will be listening to this podcast, sometimes your big brother thinks he knows what's best for you and you don't agree. Mm-hmm. So that's been a problem. You know, in family life, it certainly has been for Russia. But from Russian cultural mindset, there's also the concern that at some point in the collapse of the Soviet Union, there were some degree of guarantees given with no signatures made, but handshake agreements that Ukraine would would become an, an independent, but a neutral state between between the West, NATO, European Union, and, and Russian Federation. But that didn't really leave Ukraine the freedom to become what it chose to be. And so there's a certain sense on the part of some Russian speakers that the West has betrayed, its, has broken its promises because Ukraine has turned toward the West. But there's been, again, the mindset of big brother, why should little brother make his own decisions? And so the fact that Increasingly, over the last many years, as Russia has, among the first two presidents, Leonid Kuchma of the Ukrainian state, they worked very closely with, with the Russians and, and kept very close bonds to them. Um, but increasingly, Ukrainian people, by and large, have moved in the direction of wanting to have close relationship with, with the West, with the European Union and the countries of the West, and not so much with Russia, even though they recognize they'll always have interaction with Russia. Would there be anything in the theology and, and the history of the Orthodox Church that, that you would see that really fits with this other-than mentality that Russia has adopted that is more about dogma being, you know, this is the way, but, and, and less about distinction, which is often where I think theology is meant to take us of being, you know, this is, this is why Orthodox is different than Protestantism. Is there any underpinnings? Uh, a couple of things, and I'll see if this fits for it. Um, one of the striking things to me as somebody who's been trained in history of dogma and, and doctrine and so on in the West is, is that orthodoxy is, is not inclined to engage in, in definitions. They, they don't do systematic theology in the ways kind of that we've gotten used to in Lutheran and Reformed and Roman Catholic circles in the West. And, and so interestingly, for example, uh, there are no doctrinal differences in contemporary orthodoxy. They all agree, but the only creed they adhere to was the Nicene Creed of three uh, Nicene Constant and Apollon Creed of three eighty one. Um, they they don't go into the definitions of doctrine and that sort of thing. It's it's the practice of living faith, living out of the liturgy, and continuing to try to live in the patterns uh, set forth by the Church Fathers, the first expositors of Scripture centuries ago. So that's one thing that's certainly different than what we're familiar with. Uh, but there there was a declaration. Oh, a century or more ago, in a large meeting of Orthodox representatives, that they they would oppose ethnophilitism, which sounds like a strange term to us, mm-hmm. but it basically is the marriage of nation and state that would make others be the object of of, of opposition. So that mm. in kind of a pride in nation that would also be pride in state, but to the exclusion of other Orthodox, uh, and that was seen as a perversion of of Orthodoxy's what they perceive as Orthodox good connection between the people as a whole and their Orthodox faith. But that's, wh- that's why we have, with other things, you have Russian Orthodox, Ukrainian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, is that Orthodox communions, jurisdictions are, are organized largely by nation. And so it, the very fact of they're being organized by nations, not in some overarching hierarchy as such as you have with the Roman Catholic or the Anglican churches, uh, puts them right in the way of if there's conflict between two Orthodox communions, two different states, how do you deal with that without falling into the 
hostility toward the other nation. Mm. Oh, so fascinating. And we're going to have to leave it at that, but lots to chew on as we can consider this conflict and, and pray to its end, uh, but to do so from a fuller analysis. Thank you, Jim Payton from McMaster Divinity College. And again, a reminder, you can get his book, The Unknown Europe, uh, to dig into this stuff even more. Appreciate your time. Thank you very much, David, for this opportunity. And if you want to circle back on any of the dates and events that we mentioned in the show, you can do that at the show notes going to davidmanmedia.com slash podcast. Next time on Culture at a Crossroads. Today he is quickly being recognized as one of Canada's most effective Bible teachers. Paul Carter's Into the Word is among the top 1% for podcasts in the world. And according to the Aurelia Ontario pastor, if he can attribute the success to anything, it's to the power of God's word. So pretty soon, I mean, we had the biggest youth group in our denomination, and all, all we were doing is teaching kids the Bible. So that kind of changed my heart a little bit. It just made me realize I don't, I don't want to play games. I just want to trust in the word of God. And so I really do believe there's something powerful about the Bible. Um, it's magic. It's like magic beans, right? Like you just, mm. you chuck these magic beans at people and something, the Holy Spirit goes ahead of you, it makes a crack, the bean gets in there and all of a sudden something crazy's growing. Thanks for listening today. A reminder that you can access any of our episodes when you head to the Culture at a Crossroads podcast. We do invite you back next week as we once again explore the intersection of faith and culture in Canada, helping to better equip you in following Jesus. Jesus.